All right, everybody, welcome to session five of the Treason of Isengard class. So, you know, somewhat surprisingly, um, we ended up getting a little carried away talking about the Errantry poem history. I don't apologize uh, because I love it. Um, so, um, uh, so I'm I, I'm glad that we spent two weeks talking about Errantry. Put us a little bit behind, but tonight we're going to cover both chapters on the Council of Elrond, uh, which is going to be great. Uh, and actually probably easier than trying to cover, uh, much easier than trying to cover all the Errantry poems in one week. So uh, anyway, so that's that's the plan tonight. Uh, so what we're going to be looking at is Tolkien's continued uh, sort of evolution of the Council of Elrond. Now, one of the things that you'll notice uh, when you read these chapters, uh, especially you know, sort of looking at Christopher's commentary as he goes along, is naturally, you know, what Christopher keeps focusing on is how close the text of the story keeps getting to the published Fellowship of the Ring. Of course, that's sort of the, um, the, the, obviously, the touchstone, right, that he keeps coming back to. And as I say, makes all kinds of sense, right? I'm not trying to criticize him for that. Um, that's not what I want to focus on, though. I mean, of course, that's very interesting. What I'm really interested in is to see the development of the concept, of course, uh, and uh, to begin to... to uh, my, my own kind of goal in going through the history of The Lord of the Rings here is to begin... is to understand the sort of the overall pattern of the conceptual development of The Lord of the Rings, right? Um, if you see what I mean uh, about that... Um, so, so like, for instance, I want to try to put ourselves imaginatively into where the story is in Tolkien's mind at this point, as far as we can tell, based on the evidence uh, of the manuscripts. Uh, so there are a few things that we're going to be looking at here at the beginning uh, tonight uh, that sort of show this. The, thing, the two things that I sort of flagged in the title uh, of tonight's class, of Andor and Irongarth, these are, of course, the two big things that uh, I'm, I'm wanting, I want to focus on. We're going to you know, be looking at more stuff about that uh, than about, there'll be a few other kind of odds and ends that we're going to be looking at, um, but I want to spend more time looking at the story of Gondor and, in particular, how that story interacts with, um, uh, with the the Aragorn story, right? And then I want to, of course, be looking at Isengard and Saruman as Saruman as captor of Gandalf finally makes his appearance. We had that sketch that mentioned Saruman, um, though not by that name. You know, he, he only was sort of getting that name as, as, uh, as Tolkien was working on it. As Christopher points out in his comments, up to this revision, you know, up to, to version four, basically, of the Council of Elrond, there was no real clear narrative about what happened to Gandalf once the, you know, he gets besieged in a in a western tower, you know, one of the elf towers out to the west of the Shire. Once that idea was abandoned, uh, it, it wasn't clear exactly what had happened with Gandalf. So that that narrative, Gandalf's story, is a big deal, and yeah, it's certainly true. Like the you know the the Saruman stuff. The uh, you know Gandalf story, uh, the the Boromir and Aragorn material gets fleshed out, but I, I wanted to kind of take a couple steps back again. Christopher's focusing on comparing the texts, right? The text of the drafts to the published text. I want to kind of take a, a couple steps back and look at the bigger picture. And here's what, one pattern that strikes me right away that we can begin to see, and and you know we'll sort of uh, be looking at some of the details uh, as far as this stuff goes as we move through, but. The thing that I find most fascinating is that so far, 
through the return of the shadow and the treason of Isengard, the story development has not proceeded anything like along the lines that we might have guessed. Um, Let me explain what I mean by that. Tolkien is famous for his world building, right? It is, there are so many people who read The Lord of the Rings and fall in love not with the Lord of the Rings, or not just with the Lord of the Rings, but with Middle-earth itself, right? Um, It is the depth and detail uh, and intricacy and consistency of Tolkien's world that he made, um, which is, you know, one of the major things, I think, that really draws people in and keeps people in uh, as Tolkien fans. It's just one of the things that so obviously sets Tolkien apart from so many other fantasy writers. Um, I'm not, I don't challenge that. Based on that, though, right, given what we see of Middle-earth, the world, and sort of the history and the depth uh, uh, of Middle-earth, if we would guess, based on that, right, we might have guessed that where the story begins is with the backstories, right? You know, so first he fleshes out this idea of, you know, the fall of Numenor and the rise and fall of Gondor and Arnor, right? We'd think that, like, that whole world history and all of the details of it existed first, and then the story kind of grows out of that. So he sort of draws from that background, right, in order to uh, to build the story that he's writing. What we have seen consistently through the return of the shadow and the treason of Isengard to this point uh, is the opposite of that, almost completely the opposite of that. The story itself, the narrative has emerged, and it's emerged episodically. I mean, it's emerged... uh, The story of The Lord of the Rings has absolutely been like a string of beads, right? There's like incidents which he's stringing together. A series of adventures, right? He has an ultimate plan, right? Well, he eventually figured out an ultimate plan, right? That is the quest to Mount Doom. As we saw, that's not where we were originally, you know, in the very first draft. But anyway, you know... we have that overall framework, but not only does he not know where that is, right? Not only did he not fully anticipate where the story itself was going to develop, he didn't anticipate most of the world. I mean, that idea, that concept of Frodo taking the Ring to Mount Doom existed when the whole southern world, you know, Gondor, Brohan, Lothlorien, uh, you know, not a glimmer. Right when they didn't exist, even as concepts, even as vague concepts, uh, in Tolkien's mind, uh, and uh, the only thing he had was a sort of a series of adventures or obstacles that eventually the company would have to would have to overcome. Right, and on that list were Fangorn, right, the the the, the forest of the of the of the giant Fangorn, who was going to be hostile. Um, and, and eventually Mordor, Mordor, which was going to be in southern Mirkwood and then has been kind of drifting south, right? Um, so again, you think about maps. The maps are another thing for which Tolkien is, is famous, right? The maps that Christopher drew, you know, this detailed world and the wonderful geography and the wonderful nomenclature, right? The names of all the rivers and everything else, right? That's not... They didn't come first. He doesn't start off with a world fully drawn and then write a story that takes place in that world. He's clearly writing the story and then filling in and expanding the world around it uh, as the story itself expands. Um, And uh, that's, again, just 
I'm not saying it, you know it's 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 good or bad or anything like that. Um, but it is um, it's definitely different than we might have guessed if all we knew was the finished product. It's one of the things that has been so fascinating as I've been really really noticed. It's been really striking me as we've been reading through together uh, so far. Um, tonight we're going to be looking at a couple major examples of this, uh, where again the story has brought him to a point where he needs to create and flesh out things which we might have guessed had come first, right? Um, the plot of Aragorn, the once and future king, well, he wasn't once the king, right? But, like, you know, the whole Return of the King plot uh, of uh, of the Lord of the Rings, again, if I'd known nothing about it, right, if I'd just read the Lord of the Rings, uh, I don't know about you, but I probably would have guessed that that was one of the major elements from the beginning, right? So, you know, that, like... Imagine, you know, if, if I had just been imagining, my, you know, again, knowing the finished product, imagining Tolkien sitting down in brainstorming mode, you know, the the quest of the ring and the return of the king, these are the two major elements, it, you, you would guess, maybe, right, that that's where he'd be starting from. What we see in tonight's reading in the Council of Elrond, that's not the case, right? That grew. Uh, and grew surprisingly. In fact, he backs into that story. As we've seen, of course, how Trotter begins uh, as the Hobbit. He's only just recently, uh, in the latest drafts, in like the fourth draft, become uh, definitively human and of Numenorean descent. And now, perhaps you, like, you know, like me, I mean, I remember when I first read this, I had that same reaction. That was once once it's declared, like once it becomes clear that Aragorn is the descendant of Elendil, right? It's like, well, okay, so the Return of the King plot. Finally, this is where it's come in yet, right? Only to find, no, it's not actually. The Return of the King plot is still not clear, and only something uh, that um, begins to emerge, right? That begins to, uh, to, to unfold itself as he's working this stuff out. Um, so that's that my, my, my sort of intro thing. I wanted to kind of pause before I get too distracted with looking passage to passage and, and concept to concept. I wanted to take a moment here at the beginning to look at the big picture that we've been seeing unfolding uh, and which, uh, which really struck me today when, and I want to be looking at. Um, I... Um, um, yeah, so so this um, this approach by Tolkien, I think, is really fascinating, and it's one of the things that gives this story such an interesting life, uh, is to see how he kind of rolls with it and follows it where it leads him, right? But anyway, okay, let's, um, let's dig into it. So last time, in looking at the errantry poems, I was looking at the relationship with the Silmarillion material, and I made the comment at the beginning of the last class uh, that I think we can see uh, in the errantry stuff and in some of the stuff that follows here in the Council of Elrond, uh, him beginning now really self-consciously to uh, to kind of have the story, this story of of that takes place in the world of the Hobbit, right, to really begin to settle in uh, to with the Silmarillion world. You know, he he, he drops the firewall back in the third third go. Uh or is it the second version? Anyway, um in the in the uh uh we t- the place we talked about in the return of the shadow when uh, when Trotter recites uh Light as Leaf on Linden Tree, the Baron and Luthien poem or the the revised version of it anyway. 
um, you know, that's the moment when finally this story that he's writing uh, officially is living within the same world as the Elder Days, of which he had already written and thought so much. Um, but it was still kind of uncomfortable, and we saw that right away. Um, remember the passage, and it came almost right after that, right? Right after uh, the, the the door opens, right? Uh, and Trotter does the Baron and Luthien thing, and then launches into a long prose recap, right, of the Baron and Luthien story. Uh, I, I, this always happens with Tolkien with Baron and Luthien, right? Once the once the you know, all you have to do is just crack open the window for Baron and Luthien, and the whole thing comes flooding in. Um, it was the death of the children of the lay of the children of Hurin, right? And it's not the death of the Lord of the Rings, but it certainly uh, sweeps in and takes over that chapter. The, what's in the published Fellowship of the Ring, the prose synopsis that Aragorn gives afterwards, uh, is much shortened compared to that first draft that he wrote, you'll remember. Um, but right after that, Frodo gets to Rivendell again, and he immediately starts writing... Some, we, we, we've had references to Gilgalad, uh, and, and now we, 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 we increase them, right? Now he, he goes and he integrates directly some of that Fall of Numenor stuff and the Last Alliance material, uh, linking it back... Elrond is now officially... Elrond was always Elrond half-elven, but Elrond half-elven of The Hobbit was the Elrond concept, the half-elf concept recycled, right? And and, the, and that name reused. Uh, he officially becomes the son of Eärendil, as we saw. But when we saw him do that, those were like asides, right? I mean, he was like, hey, I'm going to write a whole bunch of First Age stuff. Um, and it didn't integrate really fully together. That's the first thing that struck me in rereading this draft of the Council of Elrond is that he integrates it more thoroughly uh, and I think more effectively. When he told of Elendil and Gilgalad and of their march into the east, Elrond sighed. I remember well their array, he said. It reminded me of the great wars and victories of Beleriand. So many fair captains and princes were there, yet not so many or so fair as when Thangorodrim was broken, changed to taken. "'You remember?' said Frodo, breaking silence in his astonishment and gazing in wonder at Elrond. "'But I thought the fall of Gilgalad was many ages ago.' "'So it was,' said Elrond, looking gravely at Frodo. "'But my memory reaches back many ages. I was the minstrel and counsellor of Gilgalad. My father was Eärendil, who was born in Gondolin seven years before it fell, and my mother was Elwing, daughter of Dior, son of Luthien, daughter of Thingol, king of Doriath, and I have seen many ages in the west of the world. I knew Beleriand before it was broken in the Great Wars. Okay. Same kind of concept, right? Same meat of the uh, of the discussion, right? You know, this is exactly what we saw in that first conversation that he immediately started drafting, right, between Elrond and, and Frodo, um, where Elrond made the made the connections, right? Connected the dots. Yet I'm that Elrond. I saw the end of the first stage, right? I am descended directly from Luthien, uh, and I was there at the Battle of the Last Alliance. Um, uh, So, again, we saw that impulse, but look at how it happens now. Just not, I'm going to sit down and tell, like, a sidebar story of the first stage, right? Um, Instead, now, it's integrated within the... Again, this is a familiar passage, of course, to us, something quite like this, uh, makes it direct, makes it into the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, but again, that's not what I'm chiefly interested in. What I'm chiefly interested in is comparing that to what we saw him doing before, right? And now this is at home here. Um, he's able to just toss this off. Notice also how we are cued by Frodo's reaction. The, the interjection, 
of Frodo. So astonished that he like commits a faux pas, right? And is like, you remember, right? Um, and this is one of the ways, and Tolkien does this quite a lot, right? The way in which we ourselves, our own wonder, our own astonishment, is sort of suggested, right? Is uh, uh, it's we are we are we are nudged towards astonishment, wrapping our own minds around the enormity of the fact that this guy standing in the you know at the end of the table, right, speaking or sitting at the end of the table speaking. Um, is that ancient, right? What is that? What would that be like to be sitting there and realize this guy is thousands of years old? Those ancient stories that I wasn't even sure I believed in necessarily, right? Or maybe you know many hobbits don't believe in them. Um, you know those the, those stories which are you know a point of contention between uh, you know Sam and Ted Sandyman. Uh, the the stories that Sam is like, I believe in the old stories, whatever Ted Sandyman may say, right? Those stories. Um, he was in them. He was there's an eyewitness of those ancient stories and that kind of whole like changing your entire world view to grapple with the reality of this dude was there at all those things. Um, and so this we don't get that before again before we just got dots being connected almost in in uh, uh, in in the abstract, right? Um, I love the way, the technique that Tolkien uses here to bring that kind of awe, um, the resonance that he gives to those ancient stories, the ancientry that he emphasizes in those ancient stories uh, through this mechanism. Um, I think that's uh, really, really pretty cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, Kate says the uh, you know during the development of this scene, it seems like the time between Beleriand and the Shire is becoming longer and longer. Yes, certainly, Kate. I mean, if you remember, uh, Kate, the initial drafts of the Hobbit, right? Um, uh, the 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 time was pretty narrow, right? When that in the, at the very beginning, he flirted with the idea of having them cohabitate the same world, and when he did, they were going to be like right in they're part of the same story, right? Um, in the public, by the time we get to the published Hobbit, he's distanced those and separated them. Right, the firewall has come down, um, but still, there's there's this sort of vague sense of ancientry around the whole thing. Um, uh, that ancientry is much clearer and much much sort of firmer. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, John, that's a great point. John Caldwell says this is the first real sense of elven immortality that is introduced within the narrative and really sets up in a more concrete way what elves are within Tolkien's perspective. That's right, we've met elves before, right? Well, we've met an elf, too, I guess, if we count Gorfindel, though we didn't get to know him super well, right, on the, uh, on the way to the ford. Um, but uh, Gildor, right, primarily, uh, is the elf that we've met. Uh, and you know when in it's it was <clears throat> really fun doing that passage in uh my exploring the lord of the rings uh sessions uh when we looked at that passage really carefully and one of the things we concluded there was that one of the main emphases of that passage um describing the evening with the elves at woody end is the otherness of the elves like these folk are just different than hobbits are right they are unfamiliar alien in a good way right um, but you're right, John, that the actual immortal, like they're theoretically immortal, right? We know that that's, that's a thing about elves, right? Is that they're immortal. Um, but it, again, it doesn't come home to you. Um, that's not been the chief 
point of emphasis at any point along the way. So you're right, John, this is really the first time that that's really put in the spotlight. Like, pause for a second, people. Elves are immortal. Yeah, sure. But do you realize what that means, right? Do you understand the implications of that? Um, yeah, so I think that that's a, I think that that's a really important point. Um, by the way, one small point I would... Um, uh, I would, I would make this Dior son of Luthien that's in square brackets here. That's so Christopher. Like, he can't help himself. Um, Tolkien, of course, wrote, and my mother was Elwing, daughter of Luthien, daughter of Thingol, king of Doriath. That's what Tolkien actually wrote. But Christopher has corrected it, right? Because he left out Dior, and this really bothers Christopher. Um... And Christopher's sure that he didn't, he's not changing it. Like, he's not, he's not, this doesn't mean that Tolkien is omitting Dior uh, from the story, right? He's not changed it, he just slipped up. And I'm sure he's, he's, I mean, he's he's probably right. There's no reason to think that he's ditching Dior at this moment uh, in his conception of the Luthien story. Um, But, um, uh, but anyway, it's, um, uh, it's, it's just it's 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 a funny little Christopher Twitch, right? Like it's the the, and he couldn't just leave it. He couldn't just put a note there, right? He actually had to insert it into the text. Uh, I love that. I just sorry. I just like having having gone. This is another thing when going through the history of Middle Earth as carefully as we've been doing, reading them straight through. Which, as I've said before, I've never done this before. I have never read the history of Middle Earth cover to cover, cover to cover, all the way through. Um, I've only just sort of referred to it and read, you know, you know, read this and then read that. Uh, so reading the whole thing through in order is is a totally new project for me, which has been fun. And one of the consequences of it is I feel like I've gotten to know Christopher pretty well, right? Because we've been reading a lot of Christopher and and especially and not per. Personally, of course, but, you know, the way that he handles the text and his own sort of uh, uh, pet peeves and preferences and things like that. So that 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 particular strikes me as very Christopher. Uh, but um, anyway, uh, uh, Tiffany on Facebook brings up the, 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 the issue of uh, elvish immortality, sort of not exactly questioning, but asking about you know, the elvish immortality and the sort of paradox effect that they're immortal and yet they can be killed. But that, I think, Tiffany, is such an essential element, especially for Tolkien's elves, right? They are immortal, but not at all unkillable. That's the thing, right? That's what makes them as tragic and as sad as they are. They can experience loss. They can die. They can suffer and they can die. They don't live in this sort of permanent stasis of like happiness and unflappability, right? They, they, they can suffer and they can, but they're disp- howsoever much they suffer, right? Howsoever many loved ones they lose, which they can do at least for a while, right? They can experience that kind of very prolonged separation from their loved ones, even though none of them leave the earth. Um, uh, yet they continue, right? No matter what. Um, and this, of course, is Elrond. Elrond is a survivor, um, a survivor in the sense that he's been through a whole lot of major events in Middle-earth and lived through them all, but he's also a, su- a survivor in the sense of uh, having outlived most everybody he knows, right? I mean, you make a list of Elrond's friends and family and associates, and he's outlived almost all of them uh, by the end of the Third Age. Um, and that's, you know, for... A guy who isn't going to die, right? Um, I mean, that's hard enough on a human, 
right? Who outlives all of his friends and family and, and lives to an old age, right? Uh, a human might have to put up with a couple decades of that, perhaps, of the loneliness that might come from outliving all of your friends and family. Um, Elrond has had millennia of it. Um, anyway, so, uh, uh, yeah, but, but again, that's, that's, that's the whole point, right? Um, Tolkien in the story helping us to understand, and I, th- I think that that's sort of an element here, right? Um, I have seen many ages in the west of the world. Um, I knew Beleriand before it was broken in the Great Wars. Look at the implication of that, right? I remember, but, oh, but you know, it was broken in the Great Wars. I remember it before it was broken. That tells you how old I am. It also tells you how much loss I have endured. Thousands of years ago, the land I knew, my home, my childhood home, right, the places that I loved and the people that I knew were all destroyed. Um, and that was just what happened 6,000 years ago. It's been a pretty eventful last six or seven millennia, too, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Sharon, that's a really good point. Sharon says, do the Lord of the Rings elves return from the halls of Mandos like Glorfindel, or is that only a Silmarillion thing? Sharon, I'm not really sure. I'm trying to remember. Um, what I'm trying to remember, it's, I'm not trying to remember like what Tolkien decided about that. I'm trying to remember when he decided it. Um, because I know, for instance, his decision that the Glorfindel of Rivendell is the Glorfindel, like the same Glorfindel that died in Gondolin fighting, you know, or above Gondolin fighting the Balrog, return from death and come back to Middle-earth. Um, that decision Tolkien makes substantially after The Lord of the Rings is written. It is, I think, not only... Is there? Is it not clear? That's what I was about to say at first. It's not clear that that's what was in Tolkien's mind when he brings in the Gorfindel character uh, in the Lord of the Rings. Rather, um, I think the evidence rather suggests the opposite. I think he's. I think he's recycling Gorfindel because uh, he loved Glorfindel, and he's recycling Glorfindel. And if you remember, it was right at the end, right before the firewall came down, that he introduced the character of Glorfindel. So Glorfindel is 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 like. Possibly the last Silmarillion character recycled into the Lord of the Rings before the firewall comes down and he decides to unify the two worlds. Um, uh, So I think he's recycled. And only later on, retroactively, did Tolkien decide to say, yeah, no, it's the same, Glorfindel. Um, But did he have that concept of them emerging from... I mean, way back in the Book of Lost Tales days, you know, so we're talking what? like, 30 years before he's writing The Lord of the Rings. 20 to 30 years. Um, The initial concept with elves is that they were reincarnated, right? We had, like, the law of conservation of elvish souls, right? So, uh, uh, you know, when an elf died, it would be reborn uh, in its family line, right? Which... You know, the the joke I always make, because it's it's kind of the... points to the awkwardness, potentially, of this... uh, uh, of this scenario is like, you know, an elvish couple has a baby and, you know, the baby is born and they're like, it's grandpa, right? That's kind of how it would have worked. Um, I, personally, I find that emotionally a little bit weird, um, but that's, um, that's, that's how it worked originally. Now, he seems to have stopped that concept. Um, so we don't have the, re- the, the rebirth concept 
Um, the idea of, you know, Mandos serving as a sort of afterlife, kind of purgatorial afterlife for elves is an old concept. It goes way back to the beginning. Um, but I'm trying to remember the status of that um, in, you know, by the time of like the 1937 Quanta Silmarillion from volume five, uh, you know, from The Lost Road, which is the last last and latest version of the song, you know, so like that's kind of where the concept was at the time that he's writing the Lord of the Rings. Um, and I can't remember what, if anything is directly stated about that in the Quenta, the 1937 Quenta, um, which would again, which would tell us what Tolkien's concept was at this time. Um, so I'm not really sure. Uh, it's one of those things, certainly, that he clarifies more later on, you know, down the road. Um, uh, Stephanie, uh, see, Arthur, you'll like this. Stephanie uh, is uh, saying, uh, Stephanie, what is it? Uh, uh, Kutsukos. Is that right? Kutsukos? Os? How do you pronounce it? Am, am I pronouncing it right? Kutsukos? Uh, great name. So Stephanie, uh, Stephanie says uh, she really wish... Uh, Wishes that Tavildo had continued to evolve, uh, and I know I know Arthur still misses Tavildo too. Um, yeah, uh, Kutsukas. Okay, Kutsukas. Kutsukas. Okay. Uh, see, that's 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 deceiving. With the vowels spelled the same but sounding totally different, that's 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 tough. That's a tough one, Stephanie. Kutsukas. Okay, great. Um, anyway, so. Let me get. I'm 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 at serious risk of spiraling out of control here. Let's uh, um, uh, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Okay. Uh, anything else I wanted to emphasize? Nope. Let's move on. Thinking about the map uh, and remembering what I said again. Trying to take st- uh, take stock of where exactly Tolkien's imagination is on this stuff. Not assuming, right? We all have the published Lord of the Rings in our heads, right? And so it's really easy for us to fill stuff in and assume that that stuff is already there in Tolkien's mind when it isn't necessarily already there in Tolkien's mind, right? And we get reminded of that here. Um, So uh, in their discussion in the council, they passed then from the winning and losing of the ring to Bilbo's story. And once more, he told how he had found it in the cave of the Misty Mountains. Then Aragorn took up the tale and spoke of the hunt for Gollum, in which he had aided Gandalf, and of his, changed to their, perilous journey through southern Mirkwood and into Fangorn Forest and over the dead marshes to the very borders of the land of Mordor. So now remember, uh, this is a, a... Notice what's happening here. The path of the hunt for Gollum Right, this previous journey that Aragorn, first Trotter the Hobbit, had done it too. Remember, that's why he's got wooden shoes because he went down into Mordor as well and was captured and tortured by Sauron. Uh, his feet were tortured by Sauron, and that's why he had wooden shoes or possibly even prosthetic wooden feet. Um, uh, so, you see what function imaginatively that journey, that hunt for Gollum has. It's laying the path, um, the whole map of Southern Middle Earth. So, like. Rohan, Gondor, the White Mountains, you know, uh, uh, the all of southern Gondor down to the bay and everything else, right? Not there, right? What do we have? We have a path. We've got the Misty Mountains 
and Mirkwood. We've had those, right? We've got the Hobbit map. Remember what's below the Hobbit map? Nothing south of Mirkwood, right? There was so there was nothing. He had nothing. Uh, remember the first, still what second, third draft of the Fellowship of the Ring story. He was still bound, bounding the entire story within the Hobbit map, right? That was still the map of the entire world. It, we're seeing it expand. Mordor was shifted to the south, vaguely somewhere in the south. We we weren't told exactly where it was, right? But it's 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 off to the east, right over the Misty Mountains, but down south of Mirkwood and the Long Lake, vaguely in that direction. And we had adventures imagined along the way. Fangorn, right? Fangorn's going to be an obstacle. They got to cross through Fangorn and and somehow escape, overcome, interact with Treebeard, the probably malevolent giant, right? But possibly less so as time goes on. So, uh, and then the Dead Marshes uh, appeared. This is not the first appearance of the Dead Marshes. They've been alluded to before. Um, So that concept, right? So the concept of the Dead Marshes. But notice his description of the Southern World. String of beads, right? Misty Mountains, Mirkwood, Fangorn, Dead Marshes, Mordor. And that seems to be the probable path of the Fellowship, right? They're going to come through Moria, uh, and they're going to come out and go into Mirkwood, probably. Remember Lothlorien? No hint of Lothlorien. We haven't had the faintest whiff of Lothlorien in the distance yet, right? So there is no Lothlorien. Um, It seems to me likely that the initial conception is they're going to come out of Moria, they're going to go through southern Mirkwood, they're going to cross out of it and go into Fangorn, and from Fangorn to the Dead Marshes, from the Dead Marshes to Mordor, and there we have it, right? Um, uh, yeah, Brian says no indication that they'll travel down the Anduin. Nope. Right? And, but, and again, most of the geography that you know and that you're assuming doesn't exist. Right? This is it. This is the, this corridor, right, uh, is kind of the south that's been imagined. We have the Black Mountains, vaguely down there, too. There's Black Mountains. You know, the mountains which will later be changed to the White Mountains, but they were originally called the Black Mountains. So we got the Black Mountains, vaguely, down there in the south, right? Uh, with Mordor near to those, and the river going in between. So that concept, that the fundamental Gondorian geography begins to emerge, um, as we'll see some of that. But, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, there's... Um, um, and good, Yana, there is already the idea of the split up of the company. We saw that in one of the earlier drafts. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, Tony, yes, the Anduin is part of the Hobbit map, the Great River, right, that they cross. That's what the Carrick is in the middle of the Great River, right? So that's there. That concept is there. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, like the, the, I, what uh, I assume that Brian meant is the, um, like the, the river, like the, the boat voyage down the river doesn't seem to be necessarily... Uh, anticipated yet, or at least not not sort of a given. So I, I just want to, I, I want to kind of keep each other honest, right? Don't fill in the map, don't fill in the story, and don't fill in the backstory, unless until we have clear evidence that it exists in Tolkien's mind yet. Because that's kind of the fun, right? Is to sort of see that stuff emerging and not take it for granted as we go through. Okay. Um, let's talk about the Three Rings. The three rings remain still, but wisely they have been taken over the sea and are not now in Middle-earth. From them the elven kings have derived much power, but they have not availed them in their strife with Sauron. 
for they can give no skill or knowledge that he did not himself already possess at their making. To each race the rings of the Lord bring such power as each desires and can best wield. The elves desired not strength or domination or hoarded wealth, but subtlety of craft and lore and knowledge of the secrets of the world's being. These things they have gained yet with sorrow. But but all in their mind and heart, which is derived from the rings, will turn to their undoing and become revealed to Sauron if he regains the ruling ring, as was his purpose. Okay, so a couple really interesting things here. First of all, a reminder, right? The first thing we get from this is a reminder in case we'd forgotten the three rings for the elven kings are made by Sauron, right? The idea that they were made by Celebrimbor alone with no assistance from Sauron has not yet emerged. We have to remember that, right? Every ring of power that there is, Sauron is the only ringmaker. Sauron is the only ringmaker so far, okay? And that's important and going to be important later on. So... The three. So, what are what are the three rings? What is the significance of the three rings in this initial concept? Right, <laughs> Emily. Great question. Emily says. So, does that mean invisibility is the desire of hobbits? Well, Emily, if you think about it, actually, it kind of works, doesn't it? Remember, it's one of the things that's pointed out about hobbits from the beginning of the Hobbit. Right, is their elusiveness and their ability to pass silently in the woods, right? And, you know, to move very silently and be inconspicuous and, uh, you know, disappear from view when, uh, uh, you know, when when big clumsy people like you and me come stumping along the path making a noise like elephants, right? Remember all that stuff um, in, uh, in, in The Hobbit. That's their natural inclination, right? It's, it's the way they kind of work, right? So, in a sense... Yeah, invisibility kind of uh, the, making them invisible sort of augments their natural hobbitishness, right? At least in a sense. But I'm not sure that that's necessarily what I mean. It, it, it kind of it's interesting to me that that kind of does work in that way, Emily. But I'm not convinced that that's what was in Tolkien's mind. It seems the Three Rings are a big deal, right? They're meant to be a big deal. Um, the three rings have emerged. Remember, originally, there were just, like, masses of, of rings out there that that Sauron was just kind of scattering around and hoping some poor sap would pick them up and turn into a wraith, right? Thus swelling his, like, wraith forces or something. Not quite sure how that worked originally. But remember, that was kind of how it worked. Like, that was... Um, that was it, it, you almost give the impression of Sauron going around Middle-earth with, like, a big bag of magic rings and just kind of tossing them out right here and there, leaving them conspicuously on on uh, tabletops and, uh, you know, under rugs and things, hoping somebody will find them. Um, but uh, the idea of the emergence of the great rings compared to the minor rings, right, has changed that. And the, elv- the, the three rings for the elves were always, at once, as soon as that concept came about, were always a really, really big deal, right? So what's a big deal about them? It seems that they work differently. Uh, and we do have this clear sense now um, of exactly, uh, Marianne, not just Sauron using them like bait anymore, um, but now Sauron setting particular snares for particular people, right? We've got the hoarded wealth, right? Uh, strength and domination, presumably that's how you snare humans, right? Hoarded wealth is how you snare uh, uh, dwarves, and uh, craft, lore, and 
uh, so subtlety of craft and lore and knowledge of the secrets of the world's being. That's how you ensnare elves, right? So he, through these rings, promises, through these great rings, promises to give them what they want and thereby can ensnare big fish, right? He can ensnare the kings of the, of the seven clans of the dwarves with his seven rings, right? He can ensnare these mighty kings, including the most powerful wizard in Middle-earth, right? Not Saruman, the witch king, or the wizard king, right? Um, so there's a big bad wizard who is the leader of the Nazgul, and so and he, he was a big deal, presumably, as a mortal man, uh, and so he's able to, to bring him in by offering him the thing that he wants, presumably, again, strength or dominion uh, in this, uh, in this, in this context, maybe, you know, a little, little, uh, 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 you know, side of hoarded wealth, perhaps. Um, but, um, <laughs> yeah, both Emily and Tony <laughs> uh, were imagining Sauron as a kind of evil Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, or Stephen suggests like an evil Easter bunny. Um, but, uh, anyway, okay. So, 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 so this seems to be, this seems to be the concept here. And, um, it's a fascinating one. More fascinating is the fact that the elves seem to have beaten it, right? So no longer for the great ones. Uh, and I think, I'm guessing here, but I'm guessing that it is sort of a testimony to the greatness of the ring holders, right? Again, so just as the great rings are designed to ensnare the mightiest uh, of Sauron's enemies, if he doesn't have the ruling ring, they're not necessarily ensnared, right? So when so since Sauron has lost the ruling ring some time ago, right? The three elvish rings have been free, they've been doing the good thing without ensnare. You know that so the 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 men fell, right? All the men became wraiths. The the elves apparently didn't, right? They did not become wraiths. Um, so that this is not just like a false gift. It's not just a trap. It's legitimate. The power that is given to them is legitimate, just as presumably the hoarded wealth is real wealth, right, that is given to the dwarves. Um, But the elves also, apparently, in this initial conception, were able to withstand the corruption of the rings, of Sauron's rings, so long as Sauron doesn't have the ruling ring. But if he gets the ruling ring, then everything that they have gained, all of the good stuff that they have been able to use the power of Sauron's ring in order to accomplish is going to be, well, not undermined, going to be made available to Sauron. He's going to benefit from it, right? Uh, All in their mind and heart, which is derived from the rings, will turn to their undoing and become revealed to Sauron if he regains the ruling ring. Um, So they've sent them over the sea. They're gone. They remain still in the sense that they haven't been destroyed, but they've been sent over the sea and are not now in Middle-earth. Um, and so that's the elves' preemptive solution to the Sauron is, might get the ruling ring back and then it's going to undo it. So, And I don't know, it brings up a really interesting thought question, right? Okay, so if the three rings are over in Valinor and Sauron gets the ruling ring, what? Can he... I mean, is that... Would the Valar intervene and prevent Sauron from being able to manipulate the rings when they're in Valinor? Would the would the 
would the Valar destroy them? Would is there a, you know would Sauron get a like out of range warning? You know, like it's just like sorry, it didn't work. Um, I don't. Um, uh, I don't really. Uh, I don't really know um, how that's going to be. And Brian. I don't know exactly what it means that it would become the elves' undoing. Brian says, in a military sense, or just destroying the fair things the elves have made. Um, Brian, it certainly seems to be. Uh, it's it's it, it certainly seems to suggest that everything they have built would be destroyed, right? Everything they have gained would be lost. Um, does it mean that they like you know they all of their you know military intel would be uh would be seized by Sauron and therefore you know they wouldn't be able to resist him um possibly I don't really know um but uh yeah yeah I, I not really sure um but uh but it's interesting and see this is this is a thing which is uh it's it's one of the really cool things that I like tracking this kind of thing when this kind of idea we know he's going to shift the idea Right, we know he's going to ultimately say the three rings are a independent. Well, not independent of the ruling ring, right? They're still subject to the ruling ring, but they're independent of Sauron, right? They are not corrupt, intrinsically corrupt, right? We know he's going to go there, but he's not gone there yet, right? So, what's the story when he doesn't go there? Um, and again, knowing that that's where it's going to head, it's really fascinating to uh, uh, to sort of think about what that's. With, and, and exactly, is he going to gain a foothold to corrupt Valinor? I can't think that uh, the Valar would stand for that kind of nonsense. But, uh, I mean, could there be a parallel in, Tolera, in you know, uh, Toleresia to what we saw in Numenor? I mean, he's already pulled that stunt once, right? Like going off to an island in the West, like the uh, the island of paradise in the West and corrupting it and uh, leading it to its destruction, right? Sauron's already got that on his resume. So, you know, not totally impossible to think about. Um, anyway, uh, so again, we know that Tolkien is going to shift this idea, but really, really interesting uh, to see uh, the the way in which uh, is sort of the place where he still is uh, in his mind right now. Um, okay. Yeah, it, Tony's thinking maybe create a second Thanorian rebellion. Yeah, that's what it's a little hard for me to imagine the Valar putting up with that, but uh, maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's shift to one of our two big bigger topics here, uh, and that is thinking about Tarkil, the Numenorean, right, Aragorn, um, and his story. And notice how much we've taken for granted, even in our earlier discussions, within, you know, just a, <clears throat> a few weeks back. <clears throat> Here's his notes before he writes out the, the third, fourth draft of the Council of Elrond. At Council, Aragorn's ancestry, Glowen's quest to ask after Bilbo, News of Balin? Boromir. Prophecies had been spoken. The broken sword should be reforged. Our wise men said the broken sword was in Rivendell. I have the broken sword, said Tarkil. My fathers were driven out of your city when Sauron raised a rebellion, and he that is now the chief of the Nine drove us out. Minas Morgul. War between Ond and Wizard King. 
There Tarkil's sires had been king. Tarkil will come and help Ond. Tarkil's fathers had been driven out by the wizard that is now chief of the Nine. Gandalf's story of Saruman and the Eagle. Elrond explains that eagles had been sent to look. This only if Gandalf goes straight to Rivendell. Otherwise, how could the eagles find Gandalf? Okay. Um, saving that last paragraph for a second. I, well, no. Let's deal with that one first, actually. Uh, notice that Tolkien is here primarily still focused on the logistics of Gandalf's travel. Right? He's been trying to sort that out uh, for some time. Um, does he, Gandalf, go back to the Shire and then pursue... Uh, from there, right, where, you know, the whole uh, do we get Ham Bulger, right, and the, uh, the the rescue of Ham Bulger story that we had, you know, when exactly, I mean, the timing, is he in front or is he behind? He's been dealing with all that stuff before. So he mentions this as something that he wants to cover in the, uh, in the council. But the eagle thing only makes sense if the, because if the eagles find him, you know, if they're sent by Elrond and find him, they're going to bring him right back to Rivendell, right? So he can't go to the Shire at all, right? It would seem. So uh, we see Tolkien kind of, but again, I, I, I read that almost entirely as a wrestling with Gandalf's logistics issue, right? That he's getting to uh, at the bottom of that little outline. Look at, yeah. And Jordan, uh, you, of course, have said exactly uh, what I was thinking all the way through. Otherwise, how could the eagle <clears throat> find Gandalf? <clears throat> and we, we can see, Jordan, right, that Tolkien, for some reason, failed to uh, land on the obvious mechanism, right? I mean, how could Tolkien have overlooked the possibility of express moth messengers, right? Uh, moths who can apparently cover hundreds of miles in a matter of minutes or hours. Uh, I mean, why Tolkien didn't think of that? You know, <laughs> the answer, which is so obvious in retrospect, right? Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah. So, see, even Tolkien didn't think of everything. Um, I'm joking, by the way. My wife always yells at me because she says that I, 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 I am privately amused by she accuses me of being privately amused by being sarcastic but concealing uh insufficiently clarifying the sarcasm that I am using uh so uh let me make it perfectly clear I'm being sarcastic about that um okay um Oh, I like that idea, Emily. The idea that moths have a midnight bark by which they communicate over long distances, like the dogs in 101 Dalmatians. Uh, that's excellent, Emily. I love that idea. Um, okay, okay. So, what do we see about the story of Gondor? Excuse me, Ondor. No, no, wait. It's still Ond, right? The land of Ond, which just means the land of stone. Right, so it's it's the land of stone. So okay, so we got the land of stone. Notice the entire story of Gondor begins not with Aragorn, but with Boromir. Right, Boromir is there at the Council of Elrond long before there is a kingdom to send him. Really, right? Um, so okay, so we're working out. We've got Boromir. And we know he's from the king, land of Ond in the south. So, so this vague idea of hey, let's have a human kingdom down in the south is there. But let's um, let's um, um, let's let's focus on this realm and kind of flesh it out. Right, that seems to be where Tolkien is going here. So, what do we what do we get? Uh, notice the relationship between 
Numenor, and Ond here? What is the relationship? We have a model for this. Um, it sounds a little bit weird, but I think there are two reasons why it's not very weird, actually, if we think about it in context. And by context, I mean by sort of the Silmarillion context. Um, the situation would appear to be the people of Ond are not Numenorians. They are men of Middle-earth. Okay? They're men of Middle-earth. The Numenorians came and were accepted as kings by them. Right? Um... There's clearly a distinction, like the huge class of, what, Ondorians or Ondishmen, whatever the people of Ond would have been called, right? Um, the, uh, the Ond, what should we call them? <laughs> we, have to make up, we have to make up a name for this one slide because their name's going to change to Ondor later on. I'll just call them Ondorians. Anyway, the Ondorians, right? So you've got the Ondorians who are not Numenorians. And then you've got Isildur and Anarion who come, right? And remember, they come with a few boatloads of folks from Numenor. And they, the Numenorians, are taken as kings by the Andorians. Now, that's not surprising. That's the reaction that people of Middle-earth often have when they met Numenorians in the past, right? So it isn't at all shocking uh, that that would have... Oh, oh wait, we have several, <laughs> several uh, suggestions here. Ondians. Uh, Ondonians. Okay, Ondonians. <laughs> no, Brian, that's way too Ursula Le Guin for me. I'm going to be thinking of the moon if I do that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, okay, anyway, all right, all right, all right. Um, Stories that Tolkien has already written. Um, those of you who have done the previous books with me, um, oh shoot, I'm forgetting. Somebody remind me. Did we get to King Sheev yet? Has Tolkien done the King Sheev poem, or does that come in Sauron defeated? I know we were starting to get the, to get the, um, uh, I know we were starting to get that whole Numenorean people coming to Middle-earth and accept, and the explanation that that's where the burials at sea, the whole, the connection with, like, the Beowulf stuff and the, the Norse legends. We did do it, Matthew? Okay, it was in the Fall of Numenor stuff? Yeah, I think, I think, I think it, yeah, Rachel, that's my memory, too. Okay, I, I think so. I think it's in five. Um, we did discuss King Sheev. Okay. Phew. All right. Again, sorry. One of those things that I've discussed in many different contexts and I can't always place and remember where I've talked about it and when it comes in. Okay. Remember the story of King Sheev, right? The story of King Sheev, which is a, like, Beowulf... It's Beowulf fan fiction, essentially, right? The story of where shield chafing came from, like the, the, the line of, 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 uh, of, of the shieldings, right? 
um, which get alluded to. So it's this like fan fiction gloss on the first few lines of Beowulf, essentially. This concept, this story concept, which you can see in Beowulf and in other Norse uh, epics, this idea of the child who comes mysteriously in a boat, and he seems to have not exactly magic abilities, but he is just a different class of human being than the locals, right? And he is taken as their king. Uh, because, again, he's just a superior line of being than the other people that he lands with. Um, and he becomes, and then eventually he's sent back out to sea, right? In his funeral boat. Um, okay, it is in volume five. Good, good. Um, so, uh, uh, <laughs> Jonathan, uh, Onderlings is pretty tempting. I agree. I, I think I have to go with that, especially in the context. I think we have a winner. Okay. Um, so anyway, so remember that I, that's part of the post Numenor concept is that the survive there are you know those few survivors of Numenor come and land in the in the the eastern lands right and often this sort of cycle happens where they're taken as kings because they you know their technology is superior their their knowledge and artistic ability is you know the clothes that they wear are nothing like their clothes right that the 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 the, the weapons and and technology that they have is far superior um so they're taken as king by the local folks um this is uh, um, this is the story of the kingdom of Ond, right? They're a group of Middle Earth folks, and they take the Numenorians as their kings. Makes sense, especially the other reason that it makes sense, of course, is that again, remember Isildur and Anarion come with just a couple boatloads of folks, right? So you've got this whole kingdom, and you've got this small group of Numenorean survivors. So they become this sort of elite ruling kingly class, but they never integrate. And does not become a Numenorean kingdom. It becomes a Middle-earth kingdom with Numenorean kings who get booted out, right? You drove us out. Boromir is, a dis- is not of Numenorean descent. Boromir is the prince of the land... The, the non-Numenorean uh, uh, people, right, who still remain in the Kingdom of Ond. Um, <laughs> Onderdogs. <laughs> That's good. I like it. I like it. Um, so, and then, of course, we have their relationship with the Wizard King. Right, so we've got uh, the Wizard King, who's not yet the Witch King, right? The Wizard King, uh, who is going to become the Chief of the Nine. Uh, he is the antagonist here. There's a war between Ond and the Wizard King. Minas Morgul, right, is in play there. Um, you know, Minas Morgul is, uh, is like the place that's been taken and converted by, converted to evil by, uh, by the Wizard King. Um, and they, he conspired at having the ancestors of Aragorn booted out of Ond. Um, so in a sense, he is the heir of Ond, but not, we don't have a real return of the king situation. We don't have a land without a king which yearns for its king to return, believing, hoping against hope that someday the line of the kings will be renewed. That is not the situation in Ond. 
right? In And we have elapsed people, a people who once embraced and accepted the Numenorians and acknowledged their kingship and then turned against them and booted them out. They are much more closely parallel to the Oathbreakers than to the Numenorian kingdoms as we assume them, right? As we bring them in from the published text. Um, this Again, they're more like the Oathbreakers. So they bring in the Numenorians, then they kick them out. So when, when Aragorn, if Aragorn were to return to Minas Tirith and be accepted as king, it wouldn't be I mean, it would be, in a sense, the return of the king, but it would be like a reconversion of the country, right? The, 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 the country would be returning to its ancient allegiance, turning away from its current political path. It's not a country which is waiting for that king. Um, and the broken sword. I was blown away. I had, this is, I had made the mistake. When we were talking about the broken sword in the poem, Right? When we were looking at the five versions of the poem a couple weeks back, um, we were all assuming, I was assuming, that the broken sword was significant for its, like, the heir of the king carries the broken sword. Right? And as Christopher points out, it is quite possible that that concept of the broken sword was emerging there for the very first time, and that Tolkien was only using it as a metaphor originally. The broken sword, remember, there were all a bunch of metaphors for, you know, the crownless who will be king, right? And so the broken sword being brandished, the broken sword being brandished again was just one of those metaphors, which now becomes literal, a literal piece of prophecy connected with, uh, with Elendil. Um, so, again, here, the broken sword that we were looking at before doesn't mean that he's the heir to the king, it doesn't. It's not proof that he is the future king of Gondor, right? Of of Ond. Um, uh, it's um, <laughs> yeah. Kate Neville says the broken sword has become like Chekhov's gun on stage, uh, something which has uh, been compelled uh, to put to good use. I, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, and Kate, I mean, what I would say is, I think this, that strikes me, I hope that Christopher's right, because it, it's, 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 an, it's I, I love that, uh, if that is so, because this is, I think, what we can see at various points. Um, often, these concepts emerging in the poems, and then working their way into the prose. I think that we can see that at, uh, at several points. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, James asks, is this written after Frodo falls and breaks his sword at the ford? Is this outline? Yes. So, uh, his sword gets broken phase two, maybe? At least phase three, his sword gets broken at the ford. Um, I'm pretty sure it's phase two, though. I think. Can't remember now. It all runs together. Um, but it's it's pretty early. I mean, the first time he gets to the ford of Bruin and his sword breaks, I'm pretty sure. Uh, in that confrontation with uh, the Nazgul in the in, in in the fort. Okay. All right. So this is pretty wild. Now let's look at following up that outline with some actual prose. In the days that followed the elder days after the fall of Numenor, the men of Westerness came to the shores of the great lands, as is recorded still in history and legend, changed to in lore. I love that shift. Uh, that would be. Uh, that one word change right there 
could be a little, uh, 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 you know, sort of um, synecdoche for what we see him doing with the Silmarillion material here, changing legend to lore, right? Changing story to history. Uh, you know, we, we see that happening here. Anyway, okay. Of their kings, Elendil was the chief, and his ships sailed up the great river, which flows out of Wilderland. In the margin struck out in pencil, this river they name Sirvinya, New Syrian. I love that. Anduin, the river Anduin that we're talking about here. Uh, he toyed with calling it New Syrian. Well, at least that's what Elendil called it. And finds the western bay, the western, sorry, and finds the western sea in the bay of Ramathor Ramathir, changed to Belfalas. In the land about, they made a realm, changed to, in the land about its lower course, he established a realm. And the, changed to his chief city, was Osgiliath, the Fort of Stars, through which the river flowed. But other strong places were set upon hills upon either side. Minas Ithil, the Tower of the Moon in the west, and Minas Anor, the Tower of Sun in the east. And then he switches them, right? Because he wants uh, Minas Ithil to be in the east, the Tower of the Rising Moon, and the Tower of the Setting Sun in the west. So, he's, so, so he's, he switches them. And these cities were governed by the sons of Elendil. Uh, Ilmandur, struck out in pencil Isildur, and Anarion. But the sons of Elendil did not return from the war with Sauron, and only in Minas Ithil, changed to Anor, was the lordship of the West maintained. There ruled the son of Isildur, changed to the son of Anarion, and his sons after him. But as the world worsened and decayed, Osgiliath fell in ruin, and the servants of Sauron took Minas Anor, not changed to Ithil, and it became a place of dread and was called Minas Morgul, the something wrong. It breaks off here, tragically. Um, but, okay, so the foundation of Andor, you notice a lot of interesting concepts are there from the beginning, right? The basic geography of the heart of Gondor, right? Osgiliath in the middle with, Minas, with the towers of the sun and moon on either side, the taking of one of them and its conversion to Minas Morgul, right? The abandonment, eventually, of Osgiliath. Um, so this is the kingdom that's been established by uh, the king that's been established by Elendil and his sons when they're in this conception when they all arrive down there in the south. Uh, and again, this kind of leads us to the you know leads us to imagine the Numenorean kingdom that we know from the published text, right? But remember that outline. Probably not, right? Um, this is probably the kingdom that is established by the men of Ond, right? The men of Ondor now, they are already. Um, under the leadership now of Elendil and his sons. Okay. Uh, let's uh, keep going after this. And the men of Minas Tirith drove out my father's house. So now we return to the conversation between Aragorn and Boromir. And the men of Minas Tirith drove out my father's, said Aragorn. Is not that remembered, Boromir? The men of that town have never ceased to wage war on Sauron, but they have listened not seldom to counsels that came from him. In the days of Valandur they murmured against the men of the west, and rose against them, and when they came back from battle with Sauron, they refused them entry into the city. Then Valandur broke his sword before the city gates, and went away north, and for long the heirs of Elendil dwelt at Osferod, the Northburg, in slowly waning glory and darkening days. But all the Northland has now long been waste, and all that are left of Elendil's folk few. What do the men of Minas Tirith want with me? To return, to aid them in the war, and then reject me at the gates again? Oh, ouch. So notice, 
in this initial concept, right? And I say initial because, of course, this is the fourth version of this chapter, but this is the first version in which Trotter is Aragorn, who is a man and a descendant of Elendil, right? When, when, he was a, when he was a hobbit, this was less of an issue, right? But now that he's a man and descendant of Numenorean kings, we're working out the story, right? And what do we see? When he becomes, when Trotter becomes a human and an heir of kings... He is in rivalry with Boromir. He and Boromir are at it from the beginning. Um, they are uh, in direct opposition. And he's chippy at Boromir, right? Um, uh, what do the men of Minas Tirith want with me? To return to aid them in the war and then reject me at the gates again? He's still holding a grudge about that business, right? Um, so... Uh, Yeah, so Stephen, no, we don't have a northern kingdom. So you see how the story is working, right? What's what's Aragorn's story? What's his history? What's the history of the rangers, of the Dúnedain, the Tarkils, right? Uh, as they're called here. Elendo comes and establishes the cities, as we saw last time. Then, Minas Tirith is the only one that's left, right? Minas has become Minas Morgo. Osgiliath has eventually become abandoned. Minas Anor, whose name is changed to Minas Tirith, is the last great stronghold of the Kingdom of Andor, which is still only has its little uh, Numenorean 1% who rules it, right? Uh, and But then there's a civil war. They rise up and show... And notice the ingratitude that is emphasized. Notice, see what I, what I mean about the Oathbreakers, right? They're kind of better than the Oathbreakers in the sense that they never cease to wage war on Sauron. They, they, they don't ally themselves with Sauron behind the backs of the Numenorians, um, but they betray the Numenorians very ungratefully. The Numenorians go off and, and, and defeat the, their enemies, right, defeat the armies of Sauron, and they come back triumphantly to the city, and the city locks its gates against them. Thank you very much for fighting our war force. Now get out. We don't want you anymore, right? And they have to wander off, and Aragorn still obviously bitter about this. So what did they do? So the Numenorians go up to the north, having been kicked out of Ondor, and they go up to the north, and they found their northern city, Osferod, which is not a Numinous. It's Fornost. Right, Norbury, Northburg, right, um, the city at the at the northern end of the Greenway, right. That's that's the city that they're going to found, and that already is not a parallel kingdom with Ondor, right. It is the city founded in, in exile, exile not from Numenor, from Gondor, or excuse me, Ondor, right. So we have a three stage, uh, three stages of of fading, right? Post Numenor, we have the brief revival of Numenorean glory in the Kingdom of Andor under Numenorean leadership. Then they're kicked out from there, and they have uh, and they settle at they have the one city, right? That they that they build up in the North Country, off in the Boondocks by themselves, Osferod the Northburg in slowly waning glory and darkening days, and then eventually it too fades and is wasted, right? It gets defeated and they get scattered and all that's left, and now it's just some rangers, right? Um, that's, uh, that's the history of Aragorn's people. So he's not the long-lost secret heir at all. 
He is the last remnant of a once proud and glorious people that has dwindled and dwindled and dwindled, still retaining the memories of the glories of the past, but who is frankly wary of the possibility of, of like the offer to, you know, come back to Minas Tirith. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's going to pan out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Once burned twice shy, Boromir. No, thank you. Is Aragorn's response, right? Which not only puts Aragorn's character in a totally different context, but puts the entire Numenorean situation, the whole Dunedain situation, it makes it a completely different story. They are now the once glorious, but now downtrodden people. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, how long is the Third Age at this point? How long has it been since the last alliance? Um, it's a great question, Kate. Have we had any indicators of that? I can't think of any. I'm just thinking back, trying to think back through the Return of the Shadow and the Treason of Isengard. I can't think of any. Well, I know what it's going to be, Tomas, but what is it? I mean, now. Do we have any indicators in these drafts? Any proof? Does it say in ancient history? In the latest version of Shadows of the Past, Chapter 2? Did it say how long it had been there? I can't remember now. I don't rem- I don't recall it. Um, many ages. Yeah, can- doesn't Gandalf talk in those terms too? Many ages ago. Um, it was a long time ago, but not. I don't remember it's being specified. Anyway, um, so yeah, it's unclear how long it's been since the Battle of the Last Alliance. Um, okay, let's uh, let's keep going here. Yes, I am the heir of Elendil, said he, turning again to Boromir. All the following struck out at time of writing. I love these sections. Okay, so he wrote this, and then immediately rejects it. All, okay. Uh, For I have heard it said that long ago you drove out the men of the West from Minas Anor. You have ever fought against Sauron, but not seldom you have hearkened to counsels that came from him. Do you wish that I should return to Minas Morgul, or to Minas Tirith? For Velandil, son of Elendil, was taken as a child... For the men of Minas Ithil, and that's that's the end of the section that he crossed out. So okay, so so we're starting again. Um, do you wish I should return to Minas Morgul? That's really interesting, right? Should I come back and retake Minas Morgul? Is that what you want from me? Okay, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. Anyway, all right. So, but let's go back to so he having crossed that out. He now says, okay, yes, I am the heir of Elendil, said he, turning again to Boromir, for Velandil, son of Isildur, remained among the elves as w- and was saved, and he went at last with such of his father's men as remained, and dwelt in the north in Osferod, the Northburg, which is now waste, so that its very foundations can scarce be seen beneath the turf, and our days have ever waned and darkened through the years. But ever we have wandered far and wide, yes, even to the borders of Mordor, making secret war upon the enemy, but the sword has never been reforged, for it was Elendil's, and broke under him as he fell, and was brought away by his esquire, esquire and treasured. 
And Elendil said, This sword shall not be brandished again for many years, but when a cry is heard in Minas Anor, and the power of Sauron grows great in the Middle-earth, then let it be wetted. Okay. Now, he crosses out the business about you drove the men of the West out from Minas Anor. He crosses out that bit. Is he rejecting that story now? Do we have a new stage? It sounds like a new stage, because notice he says that Velando remained among the elves. Remained among sounds to me like when Elendo, like at the time of the Last Alliance, right? So Elendo and his sons go off with Gilgalad uh, to fight Sauron in the last, in the last, in the War of the Last Alliance, right? But Velando remains behind among the elves, and Velando never goes down uh, to the south, right? So the heirs of of Elendil stay in the north where there's nobody, right? No North Kingdom, right? There is no North Kingdom. They establish their own kind of little North Kingdom eventually, right? In Osferod, at Fornost, as it will later be called. Um, which is now based, right? So those very foundations can scarce be seen beneath the turf, um, and our, our days have waned and darkened. So what is the story of Andor? The story of Andor is not really clear to me because that's no longer Aragorn's focus here. Right? He's not talking about the history of Andor. Did they boot out the Numenorians? Maybe they still did. Maybe the descendants of those who survived the War of the Last Alliance still did settle down in Andor and were in Minas Anor. Did they ever get kicked out? I don't think so, because the, the, the post-kicked-out Numenorians are the ones who originally moved and, and, and established the northern city, right? whereas now the northern city is being established by the descendants of Elandil who remain behind. Right? Um... So did they just die out or whatever down in the south or something? I don't really know. Um, it's kind of uh, it's kind of unclear. But um, but what is clear is that now the broken sword is officially a symbol of a prophecy uttered by Elendil himself, right at Elendil's death. Um, uh, Kate says it sounds like a long deathbed speech. Oh, it's not that bad, right? Come on, Kate. How many how many Shakespearean uh, tragic heroes have had longer speeches than this after they've been uh, mortally wounded? Um, but the so that that it sounds almost like again we're not this <clears throat> version of the story is not as interested in the story of Andor, but doesn't it sound almost like the kingship of Elendil passes at the death of Elendil? Um, and the only survivors of the Numenorians in Middle-earth are the heirs of Elandil, establishing their isolated little city up at Osferod, which, is, which then has since dwindled into just a few wandering peoples, right? Um, so that, if that's the case, then the story of Aragorn is not like the people who were done wrong and betrayed by their own people and then have dwindled and now are wandering, right, thinking, but still with some bitterness and resentment of the kingship that they should have. That was the, that was the previous story. Is the story shifting to, briefly, we were kings, but then Elendil fell and, uh, uh, and prophesied that the kingship should not be restored until later, right, when the power of Sauron grows great again and a cry is heard in Minas Anor. Um, so they just establish the city in the north and then become a wandering people and the kingdom of Andor has no, no Numenorean king since Elendo. That seems a possible reading of this uh, of this uh, of this of this passage. Um, yeah. 
we've had references to Boromir having an errand, and but this is the first time Christopher points out that it was probably originally drafted in that one page that was lost. Uh, so this is not the very first draft of this, but it's the first, the oldest version that we can find. Now I come on an errand over many dangerous leagues to Elrond, but I do not seek allies in war, for the might of Elrond is not in numbers, nor do the High Elves put forth their strength in armies. I come rather to ask for counsel in the unraveling of hard words. A dream came many months ago to the Lord of Minas Tirith in the midst of a troubled sleep, and afterward a like dream came to many others in the city, and even to me. Always in this dream there was the noise of running water upon one hand, and a blowing f- and of a blowing fire upon the other. And in the midst was heard a voice, saying, Seek for the sword that was broken. In Imlad Rist it dwells. And there shall, be, there shall words be spoken stronger than Morgul spells. And this shall be your token when the half-high leave their land. Then many bonds shall be broken, and days of fire at hand." Okay, um, so there's supposed to be, so first of all, the dream, right? Notice the geographical orientation of the dream. Running water on one hand and a blowing fire upon the other. That seems to suggest geography. The blowing fire recalling Mount Doom, the running water, the great river that runs through the middle of the kingdom of Andor, right? So it's like the dream happens in Athelion, clearly, right? It seems to be kind of geographically situated, unless we view those not as geographical markers, uh, but of some of a more purely symbolic thing. But Brian, yeah, exactly. Um, we don't have Athelion doesn't exist yet. There's only one thing that exists between the fire and the river. And that's Minas Morkel, right? Um, Brian Dimmick, I absolutely agree with you. And this, of course, reminds me of that one brief comment that was cut out from before, when Aragorn says, what do you want from me? Do you want me to come back to Minas Morgul? Right? Um, do we have, is Tolkien in these early stages flirting with the idea that that's the climactic thing, the reclaiming of Minas Morgul? Is that the thing that Aragorn is destined to accomplish? Um, to overthrow or restore whatever. That would seem to put the Wizard King in a pretty central antagonist role there, right? If he's the one who's taken over Minas Morgul. But anyway, okay. We're supposed to seek for the sword that was broken. In Imlad Rist it dwells. Uh, The hyphenation there between Imlad and Rist... um, just seems to sort of suggest that it's a compound word, right? Imlad is the the word that means that means valley, right? Um, uh, so uh, rather than just presenting it as one name in Imladrist, which had a T originally, the T is going to go away before too long. Um, it uh, it hyphenates it to indicate sort of the nature, you know, the 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 literal meaning of the word. Um, Several of you are thinking about Olmo as dream giver with the running water. Um, uh, Olmo as dream giver countering the will of Sauron as the the fire wielder. Um, possibly, right? Possibly. Um, I certainly wouldn't rule that out symbolically, John. That that seems plausible. Um, <clears throat> but I like the Minas Morgul reading better. It seems to me to fit, especially given the other, the the reference to 
Aragorn returning to Minas Morgul uh, that we just got. Uh, Kate is wondering if the reference to bonds breaking, um, then many bonds shall be broken, is a reference to uh, Baron and Luthien, Lay of Lathian, right? Uh, um, uh, release from bondage. Is it a reference? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what in Tolkien isn't a reference to Baron and Luthien, Kate, right? I mean, uh, but uh, but how direct is that? How, you know, to what extent was that going to come, you know, come into play? I don't really know. Um, hard to guess. Um, the first half, of course, of this poem seems less striking to us because it's so much like the final version, right? Um, but the sword that is broken being officially used as a, you know, it's, it's being firmly adopted as this kind of prophetic symbol of kingship, right? The rest, the restored kingship of Alendo. Um, oh, and of course, Brian Wright, the stronger than Morgul spells. Ah, yeah. No, of course. I'm not even, I wasn't even thinking about that, Brian, when we were talking about Minas Morgul. Yeah. Over conquering Minas Morgul and defeating the wizard king. Totally. No, I'm now totally convinced of that. Um, that's why Morgul spells are brought up in the poem, right? Because that's what you're... We're going we're gonna to fetch the heir of Elendil. He's going to reforge the sword and brandish it again. He's going to come down. He's going to reconquer Minas Morgul, right? It's going to... It's, it's, it's the, the councils that will be taken in Minas... In the Imladrist are going to be stronger than the spells of Morgul. Um, but then the second half, and this shall be your token... When the half-high leave their land, then many bonds shall be broken and days of fire at hand. Um, the, of course, there's no Isildur's Bane, right? There's no doom near at hand. There are days of fire at hand, uh, which is cool. Um, which, remember uh, the uh, Oendel's prophecy, right? When a cry is heard in Minas Anor, and the power of Sauron grows great in the Middle-earth. Um, that seems to be what the days of fire are pointing to, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure what the... I mean, because of course, Kate, now you got me thinking about Baron and Luthien there. I'm not sure about the many bonds. Here's my, uh, uh, my my sort of more general question there. Breaking of bonds. Good thing or bad thing? Right? That is, because it could be either one. Um, it could be betrayals will occur. Right? There could be like, positive bonds of allegiance and things which will be broken at that time. Um, in the days of fire... Um, you know, many people that you thought were your allies will prove faithless, right? Could be that kind of prophecy. Or it could be the bonds of durance, right? It could be release from bondage, Baron and Luthien style, right? When you who are enslaved will be set free uh, by those events. If I had to guess, I'd guess the former, actually. Because days of fire at hand doesn't sound like good news. It sounds like a warning, right? Uh, the days of fire at hand sounds like, careful, because it's going to get ugly, right? That sounds like the kind of prophecy we're talking about here. Um, 
Many bonds shall be broken if the bonds broken are bonds of slavery or imprisonment. In other words, if the breaking of bonds is a good thing, that would seem to promise that they're going to win, right? The prophecy that victory is coming. The days of fire are at hand doesn't sound like a prophecy of victory. It sounds like a prediction of suffering, right? Again, stuff's going to get really bad. You may end up winning in the end, but brace yourself, folks. Days of fire are, 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 are at come. Are, are, are coming, right? Um, and so in that sense, I think many bonds shall be broken is uh, beware of uh, treason and, uh, and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think... Yeah. So yeah, it's... Um, when the half-high leave their land... Uh, when you find random hobbits wandering around, that's when you know that the days of fire are coming. So the purport of the prophecy would seem to just be now's the time of suffering. Now's the time when everything's going to hit the fan. But of course, if we go back to Elendil's prophecy, it's like a sequel prophecy, right? Because it builds on Elendil's prophecy. Elendil's prophecy was that the sword will not be brandished again until the cry is heard in Minas Anor, presumably in the days of fire, right? So the days of fire, that sounds bad, but there's an upside, which means that Elendil's prophecy will then come to pass, which talks about the reinstatement of uh, the... Uh, Numenorean kingships, so that's good, I guess. Stephen, good point. This proves that there are no more wandering hobbit rangers, right? We have no bunches of wild hobbits living off to the east of Bree, uh, or else you might run into them on any occasion, right? Those uh, 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 those half high leaving their land. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Nadia, great question. Nadia says, the description of it being your token, and this shall be your token, um, is the vision saying that whoever's getting this message is the person who's supposed to be wielding it? I don't think so, because uh, this shall be your token um, that this stuff is like... I, I think that's a you plural. Um, because again, what's what it's what it's tied to is not the... directly, not the prophecy of the sword, but the coming of the days of fire. Then you... Everyone who who receives this prophecy, everyone who hears this prophecy, then you, plural, shall know uh, that the days of fire are at hand. That's the token in question. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's keep going. Um, later version of Elendil's prophecy. But my, this is Aragorn's dialogue again. But my home, such as I have, has been in the north. For Valandil, son of Isildur, was harbored by the elves in this region after the death of his father. And he went at last with such of his folk as remained, and dwelt in Osferod the Northburg. But that is now waste, so that its very foundations can scarce be seen beneath the turf. And our days have ever waned and darkened through the years, and we are become a wandering folk, few and secret and sundered, pursued ever by the enemy, and pursuing him. And the sword has never been reforged, for it was Elendil's, and broke beneath him in his fall, and it was brought away by his esquire and treasured. For Elendil said in his last hour, This blade shall not be brandished again for many ages, and when a voice is heard in Minas Anor, and the shadow of Sauron grows great again in Middle-earth, let it then be remade. 
in a sense, there's nothing new in this passage, right? The story of the Dunedain is the story that we is the same as the story we last heard, right? Heirs of Elondil, they make Osferat in the north, and then they become uh, 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 wandering folk, right? The prophecy of Elendil is the same prophecy as before. But notice the difference. Notice how those two things are being brought together in this one speech by Aragorn, and the result is Aragorn and his people being in a quite different place. Do you see what I mean? Before, before, uh, he sounded a little bitter. He sounded a little angry, right? And the people, the story of the Numenorians was a story merely of tragedy and decline, right? Um, that brief shining kingship of Elendil and then lame city up in the north, which is itself fallen, and now the people are wandering and, and uh, pointless and just kind of thinking about their lost glory of old, right? It was just a story of decline. It was just a story of tragedy. Now, Aragorn links it directly. It leads up to the prophecy of Elendil. In other words, in Aragorn's mind, the story of the Numenorians now becomes one of decline still, but it's a decline that never forgets the promise, that is anticipating. It is marked now by hope. And I mean hope in the Estelle sense, that hope which is like faith, that hope which holds firmly to the knowledge of the good that is going to come. Yes, they are now few and wandering, but they're not just outcasts. They are secret and sundered. They are pursued by the enemy. They're persecuted. Sounds even worse than before, except they're also pursuing the enemy. They have not forgotten their mission. Right? It's changed, right? They're now secret and sundered. They're now fighting guerrilla warfare, right? Instead of uh, leading the charge as they used to down in Ondor, right? But now they've never stopped fighting the enemy and they have never forgotten Elendil's prophecy that the day would come when the sword will be reforged and when uh, they shall then, when the shadow of Sauron grows great again in Middle earth that they shall rise again. And it's like, what's going to happen? What does that exactly mean? Does it mean they're going to be king again? It's kind of a vagueish prophecy. So the sword will be brandished. Great. Okay. Uh, what does that translate to in political terms? <laughs> you know, does it mean the reestablishment of Elendil's kingship? It implies that, right? Because it's Elendil's sword, after all, which, which died when he died and his kingdom passed. Uh, so that's the implication. Um... But, uh, um, but anyway, so that's, uh, that's interesting. Okay, now, Tara was asking, are the Valar sending the dream or the prophecy? I assume so. Who else would do it? Right? This is a dream that's been sent. It comes to Denethor. Excuse me, he's not named Denethor yet. It comes to the Lord of Ondor, right? Uh, it comes to many in the city and then finally to Boromir himself. Right now, several of you, Stephen and Arthur, are both thinking about um, uh, Peter Jackson's Thorin, right? Yeah, there are definitely parallels there. Um, it's very close to the kind of situation that there's a, one thing I would say though about that. There's a serious difference in tone. Um, remember Peter Jackson's Thorin starts off with a, like, 
and he never forgave and he never forgot and he never forgave right um he doesn't have hope he has determination right he is determined to get vengeance and get his own back um so you know he's plucky and he's dogged but he doesn't have hope um aragorn has hope based on pr- the prophecy of elendil himself right um and that I think is very different from movie Thorin. Um, although I do agree that their stories are kind of are are, are sort of closely parallel there. Um, okay, keep going. But here's Aragorn later, and this is this this is the next version. This is the fifth version of uh, the Council of Elrond. Um, I was I was really. Um, I was really struck. Uh, but okay, hang on a second before I go on to this passage. Yana said that the uh, the bitter trotter from earlier on was similar to the movie Aragorn. Yes and no, though. I think there's a big difference. I, again, I think the tone is different. Even when he was uh, like, but when the, when it was when the story of the Numenorians was just a sad story, and he was all grumpy at Boromir. Are you going to calm me down and kick me out again? Right. Movie Aragorn is all about self doubt. Right? Like, oh, I don't know. No, I couldn't possibly. Right? Like, I've turned away from that road. Um, he's not angry at other people. Um, there isn't any edge of, like, well, the people of Gondor are even going even gonna to accept me. Right? Am I going to come down there and do all this work and end, end up being for nothing? Like, that's not where movie Aragorn is. Movie Aragorn is like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't. Like, I no, it's really a bad idea. Right? I, it's Again, it's self-doubt. It's not... Um, really doubt of the um, doubt of the doubt of the people exactly. I, it's, I, I don't think I mean, there are similarities there, there, there are definitely similarities but I think, I think some important uh, uh, differences. <laughs> Carita says movie Aragorn is, is insecure and not salty. Um, yeah yeah, and Yana, I agree. He's dubious about the strength of men, right? He 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 doesn't want to bring the the ring to Minas Tirith because he's afraid it will corrupt men, as it certainly would. Agreed. Yeah, but again, that's not the same. Uh, that's not the same as the sort of political axe that he's gr- that he was briefly grinding, right, against uh, Boromir and the people of Ondor. Um, but um, but yeah, let's look at uh, let's look at this at this passage here. Because this, I had the tone of this really jumped out at me. He's telling the story of the hunt for Gollum, right? And there I lost the trail, he said. But after a long search, I came upon it again, returning again northwards. It was lurking, it, it was lurking by a stagnant pool upon the edge of the dead marsh changed to marshes. That I caught Gollum, and he was covered with green slime. I made him walk before me, for I would not touch him, and I drove him towards Mirkwood. There I gave him over to Gandalf and to the care of the elves, and was glad to be rid of his company, for he stank. But it is well that he is in safe keeping. We do not doubt that he has done great harm, and that from him the enemy has learned that the ring is found, but he might well do further ill. He did not return, I am sure, of his own will from Mordor, but was sent forth from there to aid in the design of Sauron. Alas, said Galdor, changed to Legolas, interrupting, but I have news that must now be told. It is not good, I fear, but how ill others must judge. All that I have heard warns me that you may take it amiss. Smeagol, who is now called Gollum, has escaped. 
What? cried Aragorn, changed to Elfstone, in angry surprise. Then all my pains are brought to nothing. I judge that to be evil news indeed. You may mark my words. We shall all rue this bitterly. How came the wood elves to fail in their trust? Notice how some... I mean, almost everything that Aragorn says in the published Fellowship of the Ring is in there, right? But notice how much more ticked off Aragorn is in this version of the story. This is, I mean... Uh, uh, somebody is a, a a really grumpy ranger here, right? Um, <laughs> Carita says, yeah, let the elves deal with the slime situation. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly, Carita. He delivers an unwashed and slimy column. It's like, this dude reeks. I want no more to do with him. You do something, you know, just like bathe this bathe this stinky, slimy creature, would you? I'm outie, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Stephen Cover says, uh, "Oddly, I think I can sympathize with this Aragorn most of all." Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I hear that. I hear that. Tim, I agree. This is an Aragorn who is somewhat less regal, uh, less kingly than uh, the Aragorn that we get in the book. I can certainly agree with that. Um, I, I, I. Uh, I'm not. Ex- I mean, I don't want to make too much of this. I mean, Tolkien is going to soften the edges of this, but note what we get here from Aragorn. Right? We, he is ticked off at the Wood Elves. Right? Uh, not you know. We shall all rule, rue this bitterly. I fear um, is different from you. Mark my words. We shall all rule this. Rue this bitterly. Right? Stupid elves. Um, he's. It's a much sharper edge on Aragorn. Same with his treatment of Gollum. I drove him before me. I wouldn't touch him. Right? Um, he looks down on Gollum. He despises Gollum. Um, you know, he's he not just wary of him. He's, uh... uh is, yeah, <laughs> Sharon thinks this Aragorn needs a nap. Yeah, or maybe like a Snickers bar or something. Right, right, Sharon? Um... Uh, yeah, he's he's not uh, Tony. I agree. In the published version, he's more concerned and worried. Um, here, he's much more self-focused and entitled uh, and short-tempered. Yeah, I, um, and I wanted to emphasize this not just to kind of observe the fact that Aragorn's character contained these elements in this at this point of the story, but it seems to me to fit with within the picture of the Numenorean backstory as we've gotten it here, right? Um, The Numenorians are rangers in exile, but it's not just a disguise. They're really vagabonds, and they don't like it, right? They they remember the glory of old. They they are a downtrodden people, Um, and they're, they're sick of taking it, right? And they, you know... It'd be nice for them to like get taken seriously and get some competent help, right? Um, I get the, the whole the um, the whole picture here uh, is what again we see it shifting towards faith and hope, right? But it's still not all the way there. It's still not this like I am already the king, though I am in exile, and soon, you know, I will return to Gondor, and when I return, Gondor will recognize me as the king. I shall restore the kingship to Gondor. 
we're not there yet. Um, the Numenorians went from privileged minority, ruling minority of a kingdom, to marginalized, downtrodden, having lost everything they had, and they've lost it for many years. And they remember that, right? And they're, you know, they're still a little ticked about it, right? Again, there's this, this, this edge. There's this edge to the Numenorians. There's this edge to Aragorn's character, um, which, uh, which Aragorn is going to have sanded off of him, eventually. He is going to become uh, Tim. I think your word is perfect. He's going to become more regal. He's going to become more compassionate. He's going to become more wise. Um, this Aragorn is not nearly as wise as the Aragorn, the published Aragorn. Yeah, Terra, more like, it, it, Terra says, it seems, this seems a little bit more like how Turin might have behaved uh, uh, with a chip on his shoulder. Terra, that's a, that's a disturbing parallel, right? Whenever you're, when you're thinking about Aragorn and asking what would Turin do, right, that's, that's not the road you want to go down, right? But I agree. I agree. It's more like Turin's character. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. Um, he is heroic, but he's not yet sort of elevated above sort of human standards. He's going to be... He's going to get there. Um, he's going to be this almost archetype, right? This real hero. Um, but he's not, he's not totally there yet. Um, sardonic, Tom, that's a really good word for him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, James is, James Oakley is wondering if he's kin to Elrond yet. Yes, I think, vaguely. Elros, his twin, who's born late in the day, right? We only just got Elros. Those of you who did the Lost Road with me will remember that in the in the Numenor material, in the beginning of the Numenor material, Tolkien wanted Elrond to be, he wanted to have his cake and eat it too, right? He wanted Elrond to be the last of the elves in Middle-earth. He also wanted Elrond to be the first of the kings of Numenor. So eventually, what does he do? He clones him, right? He gives him a twin brother so that one brother can become the king of Numenor and the other brother can be the last elf in Middle-earth. So that's cool. Um... Uh, so the line of Elros, now, Elendil's connection to the line of Elros is less clear, right? Not really fully articulated. It's just like one of the surviving, in the in the original Fall of Numenor stuff, when we get to the Battle of the Last Alliance, the one who rises up to fight with alongside Gilgalad um, is just like one of the Numenorians who, uh, the, the Numenorian re- refugees who survives. So the, like, and he is descended from Elros, the brother of Elrond, is certainly not clear. But there's still the kind of indirect thing, right? Elros is the kind of, you know, um, godfather of Numenor, right? And then Elendil coming from that, so there is that sort of very indirect connection. Um, okay. All right. Thus ends our consideration. But isn't this fascinating to think about the Dunedain and Gondor, uh, you know, sort of proto-Gondor and uh, and Aragorn's character and all this stuff, and to see where this is now, uh, and to be really focused on 
um, where these concepts are in development in Tolkien's mind. His stuff is so much fun. Let's talk about Saruman and Wizards. We'll, uh, we'll finish after we talk about Saruman. I have, a, I have a couple other stray passages that I wanted to talk about, but those can wait till next time. Okay, so this is um, uh, now with, uh, with what? Uh, uh, 50% more wizards. Gandalf's story. He then told me dread news and revealed to me what I had feared without knowing it. This is Radagast. So we finally have, have uh, dragooned Radagast into the story. He's the one now that Gandalf meets and uh, tells him the story. This is what he said. The nine wraiths are released, he said. The enemy must have some great and urgent need. But what it is, but what it is that should make him look to these desolate parts where men and wealth are scanty, I do not know. What do you mean? said I. The nine are coming this way, he said. Men and beasts are flying before them. Added in pencil, they have taken the guise of horsemen clad in black as of old. Then my heart failed for a moment, for the chief of the nine was of old the greatest of all the wizards of men, and I have no power to withstand the nine riders when he leads them. Okay. Lots of fun stuff uh, in this passage, this uh, passage which is the uh, uh, Radagast's first appearance uh, in the Lord of the Rings. Um, so, okay. First, in passing, notice the status of the wizard king. Again. Right, the Lord of the Nazgul. Gandalf says, "I when the wizard king is with them, I can't, I have no power to withstand the nine riders when he leads them. Um, we've already seen versions of Gandalf chasing off the ringwraiths, right? The, the, them running away when Gandalf approaches, but not when the Wizard King is with them. Um, so the Wizard King becomes the equalizer, right? Becomes the difference maker. If Gandalf just meets up with stray ringwraiths in Crack Hollow, say, or on Weathertop, perhaps, or on the outskirts of Bree, um, carrying a kidnapped hobbit whom they believe might possibly be Baggins, um, then Gandalf can take him out. But the Wizard King, because he's a really powerful wizard, the Wizard King, um, and remember, what is a wizard? Wizard is a profession, right? Policeman, fireman, uh, wizard, right? You can go, you can grow up to be a wizard if you go to the right college, apparently. Um, and there are bunches of wizards around. We, we saw this from The Hobbit, right? There is no sense. I don't see any indication, any hint that Gandalf is anything other than a dude, anything other than a guy. Has anyone else seen anything like that yet? Do we have any indication that Gandalf is anything other than a human being who has powerful magic uh, and lives a while, right? Uh, obviously, he lives a long time because he's been around. He's been around for a while, um, and uh, uh, and and he's has power, right? Because he 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 can do magic, you know, wizard. Uh, so that makes him cool. Um, but um, but no indication that he's a, that he's a Maya that he came from Valinor originally. Um, that's certainly not indicated in the Hobbit. Um, and I don't remember anything so far with Gandalf that indicates that he's any more than a professional wizard who is very powerful. Um, but the Wizard King, man, 
Is he a wizard who happens to be king, or is he the king of all the wizards? Either one is quite possible, right? But, you know, uh, he's a boss, the wizard king, Nazgul, Lord of the Nazgul. So the Lord of the Ringwraiths has a really big profile here, even before he got into the whole Minas Morgul thing and got into the business of being what appears to be the chief antagonist against the kingdom of Ondor, right? So, um, so his stock is pretty high right now. Um, and, uh, um, he is, uh, so, so Gandalf is just saying he's, he's too much for me. Right. But okay. Um, men and beasts are flying before the nine. They have taken the guise of horsemen clad in black as of old. The as of old I love there. What does that mean? As of old. When? What's he talking about? What does he mean? Well, we don't have that much to choose from. Uh, the wraiths. Um, and no men and beasts don't have wings. Uh, It could just be Tony back in the days when they were first, when the wraiths were first made by the rings of power. But that sounds like a reference that we should get, right? Or even if, like, contemporary readers of the theoretical book, if it were published in this form, even if they didn't get it, we should know. The firewall's down. Is he talking really old? Is there, is this an Elder Days reference? Is them appearing as riders clad in black a throwback to the elder, elder days? I can't think of what. Um, if you're thinking of, you know, the black rider around the shores of Quivienen, I don't think he was there in the 1937 Quinta. I don't think we got anything like that. I don't remember anything like that. Might be wrong. Somebody could look that up, but I don't remember that. Um, and I can't think of any Silmarillion... I can't think of any 1937 Quenta parallel uh, to the Riders in Black. So I have to think it means in the history of the Wraiths, Tony, as you were suggesting. And specifically, is it referring to the old Wars of Ondor? Back when Minas Morgul was taken? So they have not been seen as riders in black since the old wars when Minas Ithil is conquered? Yeah, Brian is thinking a reference to the seizure of Minas Ithil. And Brian, that would fit our theory about the poem, right? If, cause, I mean, that would show, like, that, that another portent that, like, the crisis of Minas Morgul is at, is, is at hand, right? Yeah. Love that. Okay. Um, here we continue the conversation. I love this bit. Who sent you, I asked. It was Saruman the Grey, changed to Saruman the White. He said, added in pencil, and he bids me say that the matter is too, that if the matter is too great for you, uh, he will help, but you must seek his help at once, and this seemed good to me. That's in, so that's added in pencil. And then I had a light of hope. For Saruman the Grey, changed to White, 
is, as you know, the greatest among us, and was chief of the White Council. Radagast the Grey, in pencil changed to brown, is of course a master of shapes and changes of hue, and has much lore of beast, bird, and herb. But Saruman has long studied the works of the enemy to defeat him, and the lore of rings was his especial knowledge. Okay. Um, lots of really fun tidbits here. Uh, so Stephen says, initially, were all wizards gray? <clears throat> or was this just their little circle? Every, this is, apart from the wizard king, who's a wraith, this would make 100% of wizards, of named wizards that we know, which were the gray. Gandalf the gray, Radagast the gray, Saruman the gray. Right, his initial impulse is to make all of them gray. Why I don't know, but what is pretty clear, what that certainly suggests to me, is that it doesn't. It's not a ranking, right? And I susp- and or if it is a kind of ranking, initially he sees them all as peers. He doesn't have a hierarch a hierarchical distinction among Radagast, Gandalf, and Saruman. They're peers. Right? They're all the gray. They're all the gray. Um, so why does Gandalf go to Saruman? And what, why, how, why is he being summoned? And this is really cool. Initially, in Tolkien's initial conception, Gandalf goes to Saruman not as a subordinate going to his leader, right? going to his superior, and saying, Sir, you summoned me. Can you help me with the nine? Is that why you summoned me? That's not the dynamic, it seems, in this first paragraph. He's going to Saruman not because he is going to his superior, because he is appealing to a special. He's consulting with a specialist, right? Saruman, everybody, all of the Grey Wizards, all three of them have their specialties, Right? Gandalf specializes in smoke and lights, right? Fireworks, fire magic, and that kind of thing. Smoking, smoke rings, right? So if somebody had a serious smoke ring uh, dilemma, they'd go to Gandalf. But if your dilemma happens to be ring wraith related, you go to Saruman, because he is the one who has made, a, who has long studied the works of the enemy to defeat him, and the lore of rings was his especial knowledge. So if you've got a smoke ring problem, you go to Gandalf. If you need fireworks for your party, you go to Gandalf. If you've got a ring wraith issue, you go to Saruman. Why? Not because he's the boss, but because he's the one who knows about ring wraiths. He's a specialist, right? Just as if you if you have a question about beasts, birds, or herbs, you go to Radagast. Right, so they are their peers, all of with all of them having their different areas of expertise. Then it shifts. Gandalf only remains the gray. Saruman becomes the white. Notice not at the time of writing. Right, each white is cro- each gray is crossed out and changed to white. Notice that Radagast is turned to brown in pencil, which suggests it's not done at the same time that Saruman is made the white. Um. So, one of those two things happens first. If I had to guess, I would guess the white happens. For Saruman is made the white, and then later on, Radagast is made the brown. Now, notice, he is still said it's he was the greatest among us in chief of the White Council, right? But even that, the White Council, what is the White Council? 
We know what the White Council is. Remember what the White Council is? Hang on a second. Let me, let me, let me. Hobbit, right? We got the White Council. Let's see. Mm-hmm. Where's the, okay, the last stage. Here we are in Rivendell. Um, okay, here it is. White Council. It was in this way that he learned where Gandalf had been to, for he overheard the words of the wizard to Elrond. It appeared that Gandalf had been to a great council of the white wizards, masters of lore and good magic, and that they had at last driven the necromancer from his dark hold in the south of Mirkwood. That's the white council. Not the body. That meeting was the white council. He had been the chief. It was Saruman who... And why? Because it was called together. This is a, this, this, this conclave of wizards was called together. It's not like the annual convention, right, of the, of the good wizards. No, this is... Um, uh, there had been a great council summoned in order to drive the necromancer from his dark hold in the south of Mirkwood, right? So there was, there was a job they were, they were going to accomplish, and that job fell within the expertise of Saruman. So, of course, he was the leader of it, right? He was the, he's the greatest of them, Gandalf says, and he's the one who was in charge, because obviously, right? It's, it's, it's his area. Um, so, again, there's not this sense of ranking, there's not a clear sense of hierarchy that he is, that, like, Gandalf owes him allegiance. He doesn't owe him allegiance. But, like, if one of the wizards is going to call together the other wizards in order to lead the charge against Sauron, it's going to be Saruman, obviously, because that's his expertise. Uh, the, the works of the enemy and the lore of rings. Okay. So, uh... Arthur says, but Saruman was head of the council, though Goadriel would have had Gandalf in his place. Who? Goadriel? Who's that? There's no such person. Goadriel doesn't exist. Goadriel doesn't exist! There's no Goadriel! There's never been a hint or reference of Go- There's There's no... Uh, there, there is no hint of a foreshadowing of that person yet. She's not been invented. So when Gandalf here in the story of the white of the of in, in the Council of Elrond at this point says chief of the White Council, that's what that's why I was reading the Hobbit. Because that's it. That's the only concept, the only context we have for the White Council. That's what he's referring to. The White Council doesn't have any elves on it. What do the elves have to do with the White Council? Right? It's a gathering of wizards. Um, so, um, so yeah, no, exactly, James. We're not a, we're not even a Galadriel 1.0. We are, we are, nope, Galadriel is not a glimmer in Tolkien's eye yet. Um, there are no elves on the White Council. The White Council is not a gathering of the masters of lore. It's just a group of professional wizards brought together under Saruman's leadership in order to strike against Sauron. That's what we know. And that fits exactly with what we're taught here and totally explains why Radagast would say, hey, Gandalf, you should consult with the expert, right? 
you have a you have a Sauron issue. You you've got a ring wraith infestation, right? You, you're working against Sauron. Consult the expert, obviously. Come on, man, and do it fast. Um, this is the next version. That was the first version. Here's the second version when he revises it from the fourth to the fifth version of the Council of Elrond. For Saruman the White is, as some of you know, the greatest of my craft and was the leader in the White Council. But Saruman long studied the arts of the enemy and was thus often able to defeat him, and the lore of the rings was one of his chief studies. He knew much of the history of the rings of power, changed to, he knew much of the history of the nine rings and the seven, and somewhat even of the three and the one, and it was at one time rumored that he had come near to the secret of their making. Okay, so this is Saruman 2.0, right? Notice, notice that the leadership of the White Council sounds even more clearly Hobbit-consistent, right? He was the leader in the White Council. Doesn't that sound like an event, right? He's not the leader of the White Council. He was the leader, was the leader in the White Council. That event, that time we got together and kicked out the necromancer, he was the leader there, right? Um, the greatest of my craft is a slightly more emphatic statement, right? Um, uh, Saruman's career is, it's hinted that he's had more... So, as far as we could tell, Saruman only has one thing on his resume, right? I mean, he's, you know, he's, uh, his expertise is acknowledged, right? But the only thing, the only real accomplishment he had to put on his resume was the White Council and the kicking out of Sauron out of Mirkwood, right? But now, um, he is, he is thus often able to defeat him. So he's defeated him many times. So Saruman and Sauron have been antagonists. Sauron has scored multiple victories. We don't know what they were, but he scored multiple victories. Of which, so I guess the kicking of him out of Merc, uh, out of Merkwood is the latest in a line of successes. Okay, cool. Uh, he knows a lot about the nine and the seven, and a little bit about the three and the one, right? And at one time rumored that he had come near to the secret of their making. Remember, Sauron is the only ring maker. Celebrimbor didn't make any rings. Um, not any of the rings of power, the great rings. Only Sauron is the ring maker. So Saruman coming near the secret of their making is a huge deal. Huge deal. Right? So he's, his stature has grown here. Again, there's still no clear hierarchy, but he is a he seems to be a bigger deal in this revised version. Uh, hence the um, hence the um, the the increased uh, um, resume, right? Saruman is a is a much bigger deal. Uh, Matthew asks, does Celebrimbor even exist yet? Y- yes. Shoot. I don't remember. Can somebody go back and look it up again? This stuff all now runs together in my mind. Uh, especially because I was studying the Fellowship of the Ring at the same time and exploring the Lord of the Rings class. Is Celebrimbor... Uh, we got the... Uh, back in Eregion, the Rings of 
power were forged. Did that paragraph exist yet in ancient history? In the most recent version? Somebody look back earlier in Treason of Isengard and remind us, have we gotten to that point yet? Uh, when Eregion and Celebrimbor get mentioned as the context, the historical context of the forging of the Rings of Power? Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Let's look at the recruitment speech, and then we're done. First version of Saruman's recruitment speech to Gandalf. I have not brought you here to be instructed, that is, by you, but to give you a choice. A new power has arisen. Against it there is no hope. With it there is such hope as we never had before. The power is going to win. Added in margin, without direction for insertion, we fight against it in vain, and in any case foolishly, for we have looked always at it from the outside with hatred, and have not considered what are its further purposes. We have seen only the things done, often under necessity, or caused by resistance and foolish rebellion. I shall grow, I shall grow as it grows, until all things are ours. In the end, I, or we, if you will join me, may in the end come to control that power. Indeed, why not? Could not we by this means accomplish all, and more than all, that we have striven for before, with the help of the weak men and fugitive elves? So here's the very first draft of Saruman's recruitment speech. Um, what do you notice? What strikes you about this? A new power has arisen. Hey! There's a new player and it's totally going to win. Right? Um, we fight against it in vain. And and foolishly. We've always looked at it from... The, we've been mistaken. Right? You know, we always thought it was bad. Right? We always thought it was evil. Because like, we looked at it and it seemed to be doing like, evil things. But, you know, um, those things were only done under necessity. Or caused by resistance and foolish rebellion. It, they only did bad things because people tried to resist, right? There was, there was, it was totally the victim's fault. Right? Uh, okay. Excellent. Um, Sorry, several of you are looking up. Celebrimbor. Okay, good. Brief pause. No. Answer was no. Celebrimbor of Eregion is not referred to in the making of the rings yet. That's not there yet. So, in ancient history, when Gandalf and Frodo were sitting at Bag End talking about the rings and the ring wraiths and stuff, Celebrimbor doesn't come up. Yet. He's not back there yet. His name has been mentioned. Um, he's on the doors of Moria. Uh, so when they, the first time they get to they get through Holland uh, into Moria, Celebrimbor is mentioned as the one who drew the signs on the door. Um, so he's mentioned. His name is around, um, but he's not yet connected with the Rings of Power. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay, cool. So... Um, 
so this Sauron, or Saruman, rather, back to Saruman here. Um, yeah, Karita, he is very much making an ends justify the means situation, right? We've been mistaken about the means, right? I shall grow as it goes, grows. Josiah, I agree, that is a very interesting phrase. Multifaceted, Josiah calls it. Um, will he grow while it grows, or because it grows, or in the same way that it grows? I, I agree, it's it's really evocative there, right? I shall grow as it grows. Um, it could mean any one of those things that you mentioned, Josiah, right? Um, until all things are ours, his and the powers, presumably, Right? And in the end, I may come to control that power. We have this glimmer of an idea of future ambition. Right now, he's just going along with it. Uh, Remember, in both versions here of the Council of Elrond, Saruman is as yet a faithful servant of Sauron. He's not yet in rivalry um, with Sauron. He's a dutiful servant. We can see that he hopes someday, perhaps, to rival him, but that's a, you know, down the road, right? He's just kind of throwing that out there as a prospect to help him try to lure uh, Gandalf in. Uh, Kate says, this Saruman has so completely gone over to the dark side, I can't imagine Gandalf uh, trying to talk him back after Helm's Deep. Maybe. But um, but he is um, he is definitely um, <clears throat> very thoroughly gone over to the dark side here. Only at the end does he get around to uh, could not we by this means accomplish all? And more than all, that we have striven for before with the help of the weak men and fugitive elves. Uh, Our means have been ineffective. We need better means. Right? And I love fugitive elves. Uh, Fugitive is such a a cunning word to to fling at the elves. Right? Because it's totally true. Right? They're running away. The elves. Right? Can't trust that your allies, which are fleeing Middle-earth like cowards, right? It's easy to make that one stick, right? It's, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a very devious thing. So look, look at how it shifts. Look at how it shifts. This is the second version. He stood up then and began to declaim as if he were speaking to many. A new power has arisen. Against it, there is no hope. With it, there is such hope as we never had before. None can now doubt its victory, which is near at hand. We fought, in, we fought it in vain and foolishly. We knew much, but not enough. We looked always at it from the outside and through a mist of old falsehood and hate, and we did not consider its high and ultimate purpose. We saw not the reasons, but only the things done, and some of those seemed evil, but they were done under necessity. There has been a conspiracy to hinder and frustrate knowledge, wisdom, and government. The elder days are gone. The middle days are passing. The young days are beginning. The day of the elves is over, but our days are begun. The power grows, and I shall grow as it grows until all things are ours. And listen, Gandalf, my old friend, he said, coming near and speaking now suddenly in a soft voice. In the end, I, or we, if you will join with me, we may come to control that power. We can bide our time. We can keep our thoughts in our hearts. There need not be any real change of purpose, only of method. Why not use the new strength? By it we may well accomplish all and more than all that we have striven to do with the help of the weak and foolish. And we shall have time, more time, of that, I can assure you. That last line is so cool. What's he talking about? 
What does Saruman mean when he says, and we shall have time, more time, of that, I can assure you. What does that mean? The rings. Notice, there are two sections of Saruman's speech here. The first is the open declamation, the come over and side with the power, right? Because they're actually really the good guys, or at least the effective guys, right? And then there's the conspiracy, the uh, between you and me, Gandalf, right? I'm going to lower my voice here because I wouldn't want Sauron to hear this part, right? You and I can join together. Someday we can control the power. We're not just going to be servants of Sauron forever. That's not how this is going to go down, right? No way. We are going to come to control it. And in that context is when he starts talking about we shall have more time of that, I assure you. He does sound like he's promising immortality, doesn't he? How? What is Saruman hinting? I think he's hinting that he is going to make a ring. That's going to grant immortality, like Sauron's rings. I don't think he's saying Sauron can give us rings. If so, he would have said that during the open declamation stage. This is in the you and me against Sauron. This is in the let's not let Sauron overhear this part of the conversation. I think he is talking about his own ring lore. I think this is him saying to Gandalf, man, I am this close to cracking the whole immortality thing. I'm going to make a ring myself. We're going to have more time, if you know what I mean, right? We're going to become immortal, and then we're going to be able to fight against Sauron, and man, yeah, that's how it's going to work out, right? This is why you should join with me, Gandalf, because first of all, it's cool, right? You probably think that Sauron is evil, right? Sucker. Right? Because there's been a conspiracy to hinder and frustrate knowledge, wisdom, and government. Right? We've been lied to about Sauron. Um, we, ne- we didn't really understand. Only people who don't understand Sauron think that he's just the bad guy. Right? Remember who's talking. Remember who's talking. The Sauron expert! Nobody knows Sauron like Saruman does. This is a super plausible argument for him to make. Um, Gandalf, in this version, doesn't say, I can't think that you've brought me here just to weary my ears. Right? Gandalf in the published text is rolling his eyes at Saruman at this point. What strikes me most about this version, this is actually pretty compelling. I mean, it's slimy, but this could totally work. Again, you've got to put yourself into context. This Gandalf is consulting Saruman because he's the Sauron expert. And when he consults him, what does the Sauron expert tell him? He says, hey, you know, I've studied Sauron, right? I'm the Sauron expert. And what I can tell you is, dude, we've been lied to all along, right? Sauron's not the bad guy. There has been a conspiracy to frustrate knowledge, to hinder and frustrate knowledge, wisdom, and government. Um, I can tell you the real score. Notice how that segue from there to 
The elder days are gone. The middle days are passing. The younger days are beginning. The day of the elves is over, but our days, by which I think he does mean the days of men. Because he and Gandalf are just guys. They're men who are not immortal. Right? He, Saruman, through his ring lore, I believe, is going to give them more time. Right? Which is what men need. Right? Just ask the Numenorians. Um... This is a scarier version, isn't it, Lynn? Isn't this Saruman much scarier, right? And then he goes to the next level of... And I'm going to let you in on the ground floor, Gandalf, right? You and I, we're not really going to go along with this. We're going to play our own game in this, and we're going to control them. So we're going to establish our own kingdom, our own rule. Uh, Knowledge, wisdom, government, yeah, we're going to be in charge of it. And I have the means to make it... I have the knowledge, and I have the means to make it happen. I'm going to... Uh, uh, I'm going to make a ring. Notice, this Saruman does not... is not seeking for news of the... of the... of the... of the one. He doesn't come to Gandalf and say, the one ring. Right? You know of it. Where is it? No. He's thinking about his own ring. I'm going to make a ring of power. And I'm going to make us immortal. Um, yeah, yeah. And Nancy, I agree. Uh, Saruman doesn't sound super trustworthy here. I mean, like if I were Gandalf, I'd be a little bit suspicious about the whole we business, right? You know, does this sound like a, a reliable potential business partner? No, no, not 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 really so much. Uh, I'd be fairly dubious about that. Um, but this holds together really interestingly. Um, uh, and the picture that Saruman gives is, I think, on the whole, a much more compelling picture. Um, for my money, this is the best and most convincing Saruman that we get. Saruman, in the published text, is already a corrupted and debased Saruman, whose appeal is disdained by Gandalf. Gandalf resists this, but he doesn't disdain it. Um, this is the coolest Saruman is is going to be, I think. Um, but, uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. Brian says, the allure of Sauron to the wizards makes more sense when the wizards are still men. Yeah, absolutely it does, doesn't it, Brian? Yeah. Okay. Um, let's uh, let's stop here. Not bad. Got through fifteen slides. That's pretty good. Uh, the last few slides I have for today are just again like tidbits here and there, and we'll touch on those fairly quickly. I hope at the beginning of class next time, and then we will carry on. So we're back on schedule again. We see we did almost all the Council of Elrond. A uh, few uh, odds and ends at the beginning of next time, uh, and then on we go. So carry on with the reading according to the schedule, uh, and I will see you guys again next week. Thanks for joining me, uh, and uh, and I look forward to forging ahead next week. Thanks very much, everybody. Bye now.